Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank. And it looks like we are live, guys. Welcome to the Startup Tank, the Climate Investor Pitch Show, the show where we bring on the world's top climate companies twice a month, every Monday, every other Monday, I guess you could say, uh, the top pre-seed is C- to seed climate companies to get them a bit of exposure. We bring on our investor panelist, Sharks. I'm joined by a couple awesome ones today. We'll give a bit more context in a sec. And if this is your first time and you're looking to raise funding, well, you're in luck. The startuptank.com, you can apply to pitch on here. Think Shark Tank, but or Dragon's Den, but for climate companies. And if you're looking for funding, well, finding the right investor is probably high on your mind, especially these days with the economy going to going to shit, so to speak. So uh, if you go to forward.vc slash VC database, we've got a database of 900 plus climate funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs, which you can filter by stage, sector, geography, and check size, which means you can find the perfect investor for you. Forward.vc uh, slash VC database for more details. That's forward, like the number forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. And we do that through our partner in climb program. And one of we've got one of our companies here today, uh, Greg with Myro. And our partner in climb program, how that works, we come in and we invest. And then we go super hands-on. We become literally your partner in crime, so to speak, making dozens to hundreds of connections to corporates, clients, partners to help companies prove out the technology and scale because climate companies need a need a partner in crime. They need to prove out that tech. And once they've done that, they can scale into industry. Today, I'm joined by some incredible investor panelists. I'll bring them in now and let them share a little bit more about themselves and what they're doing. Tina, you want to share a little bit about TDK? Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm Tina Tosukovung, Investment Director at GDK Ventures. We are a 200 million AUM fund uh, investing worldwide in early stage company, typically seed to Series B, investing from 500K to 5 million for the first check per se. We also reserve the fund for follow on. We typically invest in uh, hard tech, deep tech startups that transform uh, the world, uh, whether it's in digital transformation or in energy transitions, we can lead as well as we can also be the uh, co-investor within the syndication as well. So that's all about us. Oh, one more thing. We are located in Silicon Valley, Boston, India, and we'll be um, interested in having a footprint in Europe very soon. Very cool. And thanks for thanks for coming in and uh, helping with the panel. Tina. And for context for everyone else, the companies, they'll get five minutes to pitch. We've got our panelists. They'll tear them apart. And at the end, we'll choose a, a climate startup of the night. Arvin, let's uh, let's get shark number two. What are you guys doing at Warsaw? Hi, Matt. Glad to be here. So um, I'm heading the climate tech investment division at Warsaw Equity Group. It's a private investment uh, fund based in Warsaw, <laughs> Poland. Uh, we invest in European climate tech companies um, that will also move the world forward, just like Forward VC. Um, so our investment ticket is from one to five million euros, ten million euros with follow-ons. And our main focus areas within climate tech are startups that can um, reduce the carbon footprint as much as possible, or those that can avoid emissions, um, especially in the areas of circular economy, um, decarbonizing the industry, manufacturing, 
carbon management, so carbon removal and storage, for example, and then the build environment. And then there's Alex, last but certainly not least. Thanks, Matt, for having me. I'm Alex. I'm the founding partner of Übermorgen Ventures. We are an early stage climate tech fund based here in Zurich, Switzerland, soon also in London. Um, we invest between... Oh, that's news. We got to talk about that. Sorry for cutting you off. <laughs> um, we usually invest pre-seed seed um, between 300 and 800K initially, follow on up to 2 million. And our focus is primarily on energy, um, enhanced materials. We do carbon capture and storage, mobility, and food and egg, um, always with the intention of reducing um, or drawing down carbon. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm. And then there's us guys, it's Forward VC. We're an early stage accelerator. We operate a bit differently than most. We invest in one to two companies a month and then come in and help you kick ass. We focus on all your major sectors other than the ones that have carbon credits and carbon accounting in them or anything to do with the blockchain. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, forward.vc, you can check out our accelerator and uh, consider applying. But this is less about us. We're kind of here to be the uh, the Robins to the uh, to the Batman, so to speak. And today we've got some pretty pretty awesome companies slated. Five companies planned to pitch, and uh, waving kind of the rabbit around the hat. We got five guys. Let's kick things off and a little bit of a diversity focus. Hoopsie, Lara, do you want to take things away and share what you guys are doing to make a pregnancy planning more climate friendly? No. Oh. And you'll have five minutes on the clock. Once you're ready, you can share your screen and I'll give you a one minute warning if I remember. Otherwise, I'll give you like 30 extra seconds. Sound good? Yeah, just organizing my screen. Everything's over the top of my buttons. Hang on. And if it doesn't format right, no worries. We can all see it anyways. It's all I good. Know. Sorry. Let me just... Should we try it? Yeah, yeah no or, worries. Um. Okay. Yeah, let's go with this then. Sorry. All good, all um, good. Sometimes okay. there's technical difficulties. We're building climate, climate tech. I'm pretty sure everyone here knows that hardware is hard and someone sometimes software is too. And there we go. Thank we got you. got it ready. Lara, take it away. You're okay, five minutes. I'm ready whenever you are. You're good to go. Okay. Hi, my name's Lara. I'm the founder of Hoopsie. So Hoopsie started um, after I underwent my own IVF and get pregnant in 2021. And what I found was that when women were using pregnancy tests to check if they're pregnant or not, there were some of them were using um, 10 or 15 per cycle. And I was just shocked by the amount of plastic that was being used in these tests, which were literally just used for five minutes. So a bit more, I realized that on average, women are using three tests every time they check to see if they're pregnant. And these pictures here are from 
people that have posted them on Facebook and they would just be people would use 10 or 15 tests. We know that on average, um, infertility is increasing and it takes a healthy couple 12 months to get pregnant now. In the UK alone, 12 and a half million pregnancy tests are sold every year, which is around 120,000 kilos of plastic going into landfill. And in Europe, it's around 31 million tests. Currently in the market, um, we've got all guys, so pregnancy tests in the market, we've got midstream tests, which is like the clear blue one, which is digital, or this analog one. We've got cassette tests and then we've got strict. There is no environmentally friendly option. The most environmentally friendly is the strict test, but the problem with that is that you have to wee into a cup and then dip the test in and the midstream test just because it's perceived to be less messy. So introducing the Hoopsie Eco Pregnancy Test. Our test is it has over 99% accuracy. It is 99% plastic free. It's been certified with the CE certification and um, is the most sustainable, well, the market size for fertility is US $44.2 billion with the addressable market of 30 billion and our obtainable market is 1.36 billion fertility tests such as ovulation tests. Now we did some research earlier in the year in January um, with five trying to conceive for a year or more. We also know that millennials which is our target audience are looking for products and at the moment they we launched into the market in the UK last year um, and so far we're now selling in a number of physical stores as well as online stores both um, including pharmacy um, eco stores as well as on our own website now we've done a lot of PR for the brand and since we launched in July we've been in the media over 65 times across a number of different publications. We also launched in February an advice because going through the journey, I found that it was very difficult, not just um, financially, but emotionally as well as physically. And you need the support there on your journey. Weeks into Europe in July, and then launch an eco ovulation test in August. We're launching into the EU design and be made from new materials. And then in 2025, we plan to launch into the home based urine test market, which is worth 11.3 billion. One minute warning. In terms of our financial projections, this is based on. Okay. <laughs> This is based on us looking and Europe this year, achieving around 1% of each market. The team is made up of myself. I've run and started and run a number of businesses. Is um, XBCD has a background in healthcare and to support people. 
Plus, we have a couple of advisors, one in marketing and Dr. Ass. So we're looking for one million pounds to um, spend on expansion of the brand and also probably product regulatory approvals and manufacturing. Our big vision is sustainable user-friendly home testing devices. And thank you so much for listening to me and I look forward to your questions. Awesome. Thanks for presenting. Sorry, I had to turn your video off. There were some issues on the bandwidth, I think, on your side. You can turn your video back on. I'll bring uh, the other panelists in uh, now yeah, as sorry. well. All good. All good. I'll bring our other panelists in. And as I'm bringing them in, um, one question that I would I'm have. I'm in the pub, not drinking. <laughs> no worries. No worries. And one uh, one thing I would have while we're bringing them all in is just what does the carbon footprint of a pregnancy test look like? How much are you guys saving on a per pregnancy basis or on a per month of it takes forever to get pregnant basis? Well, each pregnant on average, a midstream test has nine grams of plastic in it. And those nine plastic take around 30 years to break down into microplastics. Um, so if a couple is using three tests every month to test, you, that's 36 tests a year. So um, globally, there's 812 million pregnancy tests sold every year. So which is around 6 million kilos of plastic globally that goes into landfill. Okay. I would kick things over. Uh, Alex, you went last on intro, so you want to go first on questions? Sure, I can. Uh, thanks, Sarah, first of all, for um, presenting uh, Hoopsie to us. Um, I uh, was wondering a bit about um, your unit economics, for one, um, and your go-to-market, uh, on the other hand. Um, and I have another question, but I keep that for uh, after we spoke about uh, your go-to-market and unit economics. I think we lost you. You there, Lara? Uh-oh. Oops. Let's see. We'll give it a minute or two. If she has to jump back in, maybe we'll transition over to somebody else and then... Connection dropped out. I think you're back now. Yeah. Okay. You're back now. So can you repeat the question, Alex? You might have missed that. I wondered if you could yeah. uh, give us a little insight on how you approach the market. Uh, where do you sell? Um, and what your unit economics look like? So um, how I approach the market in terms of how I decide to launch into the UK? No, how do you get your customers? Oh, how do we get customers? Oh, okay. So um, obviously, so there's really two types of women that use pregnancy tests, kind of mass generalization, but there's the people that had sex last week and their period didn't arrive and they were meltdown and they're going to head straight to the shops and buy a test. Most of we're selling in 25 physical stores, but mostly online. So at the moment, our target is women who are planning and some people will plan a month to six months, to 12 months in advance that this is when we'll start trying to get pregnant. Um, and then the women that are doing IVF, they will know that when their next cycle is, they'll be planning for that. And they normally know a couple of months in advance. So in terms of reaching them, we've partnered up with um, quite a lot of different people, including acupuncture, fertility acupuncturists, fertility coaches, um, other products that people would use in that step in that process of trying to get pregnant, um, as well as um, trying to reach them through things like ovulation apps, um, through partnerships with other brands like um, um, 
I guess, nutritionalists and that kind of thing. So lots of different ways. We haven't found one hard and fast way that works. So we've, we're trying lots of different ways at the moment. And uh, before we go maybe to the unit economics, how does that? Oh, you need to, sorry, yes. You need, so our GP is around 70 to 80%, depending if we sell direct to retail, direct to consumers or um, into retail stores. So um, our margins are pretty huge. Um, we so we sell the three pack. So we have a three, five, and a ten pack. We sell a three pack for fourteen pounds ninety nine, and the cost of goods is one sixty nine. Oh wow! Yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> how does that, how that surprising compared to uh, uh, your competitors or the competitive solutions that you presented? Um, so we're price parity on a per test basis with Clear Blue. Um, so we do. Uh, Clear Blue sometimes do a three pack, but mostly they do a one and a two. Um, but uh, my kind of idea of launching into the market was let's be price parity. We can always drop, but it's harder to go up. Yeah. In terms of quality uh, of the results, everything is exactly the same. Everything's exactly the same. So inside these plastic pregnancy tests, there is a little strip of paper. All I've done is take that little strip of paper and make it bigger and got rid of as much plastic as possible. It's really not rocket science what I've done. Um, and we don't have any IP on it, unfortunately, but that's why we're working on a next generation, which we have filed a patent on because I am fully aware that people will copy us because it, there is no um, there is no reason the tests need to be in plastic. Absolutely none. Yeah. What's the IP going to cover then? So what's the if the test works, why do you need the IP? Because the IP will cover a new design. So at the moment, what we found is that when women are using a pregnancy test, they're not in their complete rational frame of mind. So they're not thinking as clearly as they might otherwise. And so therefore, they either don't count properly because you've got to hold it on your urine screen for a few seconds. So instead of counting to six, going one, two, three, they might go one, two, three, five, six. And that's not enough time. And therefore, they don't get the correct result for them. Um, or they don't hold it in their urine stream properly, so only a little bit gets wet. So our new design it will basically revolutionise. The test hasn't changed in 35 years in terms of look, um, apart from a thumb grip. Um, so ours will change the design of the test. That's the first part of our patent. And the second part of our patent is changing the materials so that we can have a fully flushable test. At the moment, there's one piece that's plastic that which we can't change because that's used the same in every test but we've identified a new material that we can use that will mean that the test will be made from 100 sustainable materials and potentially might even be edible not that you want to eat it but it's an option <laughs> okay and for for panelists just jump in with questions when you got questions no need to raise your hands yeah i think you cover the um, IP very well because I think that's one of the things, right? If if it works well, then others are gonna copy. And in order for it to be like a venture scale return, uh, this is the market that is full with incumbent. Uh, what is your vision in terms of really making this a much bigger company that it can be? Is it extendable to other types of tests? Because I'm pretty sure the incumbent, right? They recognize the plastic problem and there are several solutions like using biodegradable plastics and things like that. So um, the incumbent is going to iterate on the ESG metric as well. 
So in terms of your company, um, how do you even get it to be much bigger and broader uh, prior offering? Well, first of all, with the patent we've got, that will apply across all urine-based tests. So initially, we'll use it on the pregnancy test and the ovulation test, but we can then license that patent into other countries, and we can also offer it as a white label to other businesses, particularly own-label brands, like pharmacy-owned label. Um, and then we plan to launch into other urine-based tests like diabetes, chlamydia, vitamin D. And that market is worth 11.3 billion US dollars. And it's only growing as healthcare becomes more and more expensive and as people are struggling, especially in the UK, to get doctor's appointments and people want to own their own health. So, um, and we may not go into each of those markets, but again, we can license that IP. And with the new design, the new materials that we're doing, that is completely revolutionary and that will affect all immunoassay tests. So all lateral flow tests where like a COVID test or anything that will affect all of those. So we can then license that IP to any immunoassay test as well. So there is a lot of opportunities and I do see it being a huge company. We're just still very early stages. How do you get, how do you avoid being called Elizabeth Holmes? Just, I've, but just You're putting the first it out there for that said that to me, apart from my brother, he was just stirring me up. <laughs> okay. I think the technology is really there. I just think being really upfront with why the technology works is going to be important for you because it's if you are going into the other blood testing and trying to simplify and have smaller, easier tests, you might as well kill the elephant in the room. I'm not planning to I'm not planning to go into blood testing. Oh no, sorry, sorry, if I okay. At the moment, we're gonna stick with we. Yeah, at the moment we're going to stay with we. So, I mean, later on, who knows? But at the moment, it's still the problem is well, one of the challenges in the market is it's regulatory, regulatables. And they can take quite a long time. Um, so, even with the new tests we're working on now, they won't be out in the market for another two years because just they're probably five years away. So, Just hold on to your money until then, Matt, and uh, join the board. <laughs> any any other questions from from you guys? I know Alex said he had another one. Yeah, I've I've got one as well. So, um, uh, Lara, you mentioned that your test is ninety nine percent accurate. So, is that the kind of same level accuracy? You know, to the kind of um, uh, as your competitors on the market and B, you also mentioned that uh, on average, you know, one uses a few tests kind of at the same time to find out whether, whether she's pregnant. So three, three tests at the same time, I think you mentioned. Um, so can you somehow change that mindset as well? And just for my understanding, um, is it kind of three tests from the same manufacturer or is it three different tests from different producers? And if it's the latter, um, yeah, can you change the mindset of a, a you know person using a test? Because um, in the end, even if you're one of the three sort of producers that um, you know the person will choose, uh, you're replacing maybe you know one third of of the plastic they're being used. So just wanted to find out you know kind of how how it's used in reality. Sure. So um, all pregnancy tests have 99.8% accuracy and ours is exactly the same as that. 
um, and that's been tested in clinical trials. Um, in terms of uh, the number of tests they use, so women with infertility increasing, women are really worried about getting the right results. So when they do three tests on average, depends on the person, but a lot of people will use two analog, as in the line tests, and one digital test because they perceive the digital test to be more accurate. And clear blue is really, oh, Boots have a, a their own digital one as well, but clear blue is the market leader in terms of digital tests. So um, I, I think there's definitely room for us to be the other two non-digital tests. And I think there needs to be more education around the digital tests because they are horrendously polluting, like so much electronics and stuff in there. But it, women, the problem is that women, especially if they've been trying for a long time, they're really worried about getting the right results. And to the point where some women now will take a pregnancy test every single day up until week 12 because they've had miscarriages. And this is with having blood tests, with having scans and everything, but they're so worried that they're going to lose the baby that they will keep testing. So I don't know if you can change the mindset. It's really, it's such an emotional state. Um, so I think that that will be very, very challenging. So I think that probably the easier thing to do is rather than change the user, change the product so that we have something that's actually is more sustainable. And if people do decide to use lots and lots, I mean, I've met women that have used over 600 tests in their lifetime. So it can be a massive, massive problem. Maybe one, one last question from me, if I may. Mm -hmm. Laura, where are you going to be in, in a few years from now? Will you continue to focus on pregnancy tests or will you use it as a platform to also put other, uh, other products uh, out in the market? Are you still here? Yes, plan to launch relation tests this year, later this year, and then other urine-based tests. So like... Uh, um, yeah, other urine-based tests like chlamydia and vitamin D and diabetes. So we'll move away from, um, we'll not move away, we'll still do pregnancy. But I guess we started with pregnancy because that was my experience and that was kind of opportunity in other areas of testing um, that just hasn't been addressed. And then there's the next COVID, which is probably going to come around. And so, you know, we'll be prime place to actually take advantage of that kind of thing as well because that's all immunoassay tests how much cheaper could you make your tests than the existing tests how do your unit costs compare to other tests in terms of retail price like what you could sell these i'm just thinking well we're it depends where you shop if you shop Having some it, difficulty with the video as a part. I, I apologize. I don't know if for you say more, Matt. Okay. Well, I'm yeah, just thinking, sorry. like, if you want, I'm just thinking, like, if you want to have impact at scale. Um. Are you so could, what? I could, think, what if you were just the low? Mm -hmm. what, it seems like if you're cutting out a lot of material, yeah. you should be much cheaper. And if you're much cheaper, why not just be the pregnancy test for all of Africa and the developing world, and then you have scale through unit economics that no one else can beat.
that's definitely an option. Um, the challenge is we're back to regulatory approvals. Um, so we, every country has its own regulatory approval process. So it's not like you get one and you've got everything. And it's not like you get America and then the UK goes, oh, yeah, you've got America. Yeah, we'll give you the UK as well. It, you have to go through a process at each one and it costs a lot of money. Um, so really, the reason I started with the UK and Europe is because the manufacturer I'm using already has that approval. So it just makes more sense. And now we're kind of picking our markets in terms of pricing, we could drop down a lot more. Like we're looking at doing a pregnancy, uh, an abortion test. Well, for people that have had abortion, we're looking at doing that, and that will be priced at um, one one pound seventy for one test. It, but so we and on that we make around like it's about fifty percent, hundred percent margin, depending on which way you look at it. So, but the problem then comes is how are you going to promote the test if you don't have um any marketing dollars so you'd have to sell it sell it into somewhere on a massive scale um i mean i'm not opposed to doing that it's just you know one of those things to work out like if we could get some some kind if someone came to me and said okay i want two million of these then yeah great definitely but it's a bit chicken and egg at the moment any last questions folks Awesome, then, Lara. Thanks for thanks for presenting. I would uh, I would hand things over then to uh, our next startup of the night. We let's just go the full opposite end of the spectrum. Vlad, do you want to share a bit more about mushroom farming as a service? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. One moment, I will share the screen. And also about escaping Russia to farm to yeah, farm mushrooms, yeah, which is a cool story. Everything will be in the pitch. Awesome. <laughs> let me know when you're let me know when you're ready yeah so i'm ready so take it away uh, thank you very much uh hi everyone my name is vladimir and i'm ceo and founder of spawnix and we develop and sell mushroom city farms as a business and one moment yeah and this is a pack of shiitake yeah obviously i could it, there is no reason to bring a live one to a <laughs> online pitch that's why it is only an image so do you know how much work it is put here uh, in a package of mushrooms that you buy every day from the store? Probably not, because uh, nobody knows anything about mushroom production. And neither did I when I was starting this business. Me and my wife started uh, our startup as a conventional small-scale mushroom farm back in Russia with no employees at all and grew it to an industrial scale facility producing 10 tons of mushrooms per month with consistent deliveries and profits. And we started to sell the farms themselves afterwards. And uh, now I know how difficult this business actually is. So basically normally the shelf life period of one package of mushrooms is 10 days. And most of it is spent on the logistics. This means that on the farm, I should harvest, package, and deliver to the retail in one day. And due to logistics failures, climate issues, human factor, you can lose up to 50% of your yield. And for example, substrate contamination can force you to close the farm, sterilize it, uh, pinpoint the mistake in your business process, and restart it, and it can take you three to four months. 
On the other hand, retailers, obviously, they do not want, they do not care. They want only deliveries according to the orders and forecasts. And if you deliver less, you get penalties. So all the farms in the world now uh, work on full capacity and just try to sell everything from their farm each day, every day. This is a nightmare job. And this is why even from huge facilities, 40% uh, of the mushrooms in the world are sold below net cost from the farm. And this is why there is not enough producers now on the growing mushroom market. There is a really small number of specialists who can build and run mushroom farms with profits. That's why we started Sponix. We developed a sustainable, modular, scalable system that consists of our own uh, substrate preparation machine, ventilation system, and growing room, farm automation software, and planning software. With it, we can match the yield and the sales forecast with 90% accuracy in the six months for in the six months period for the future. And we reduce all the technical risks of the farms to zero. So basically, as a buyer of our farms, you do not need to have any um, special knowledge to run it, only management skills and flow of orders. Nothing to know about mushroom growing. And this is mushroom farming as a service, and this way we can grow the number of mushroom producers exponentially. Because of such a fast turnover period of mushrooms on the farms, uh, flow of orders is required to start this business. This is why uh, we first partner with retailers, such as, for example, Spar and Revi Group in Austria, where we are located now. Uh, they cover, uh, so basically we, uh, we suggest them that we can cover their demand in locally produced mushrooms in every region. And they give us these demands and we find a local farmer uh, to actually sell our farm. And this is a win-win situation for everybody. Retailers get their ultra fresh mushrooms. One minute warning. Yeah, the farmers get high marginal business and we get the sales of the farms. We charge only one-time fee for the hardware and its installation. Hardware is produced in series on contract factories and installation is carried out by our partners. Then on monthly basis, we supply the farm with substrate and mycelium, which are essential consumables for the farms. And basically we produce them ourselves and this way we generate recurring revenue for our company with big margin. In the future, we will switch also to the leasing model. So yeah, everything is possible with our brilliant team. And basically we started in Russia and managed to escape uh, the war like with borders closing behind our backs. And now we are located in Austria with the whole team. And we are uh, on precede round. We are raising money to uh, build the first uh, basically. Time is one. up. Yeah, in, in Graz. Thank you. And yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a caveat. If they fail, they have to go back to Russia, and he has army orders. So just to add, <laughs> just to add a, a little bit to the, um, to the actual over or uh, what's on the the table, so to speak. So let me bring in the other panelists. Tina, do you wanna you wanna start this time and share a little bit more, uh, yeah. questions? Should yeah, I thank stop you so the much. Presentation. Yeah, you can stop the screen share. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the presentation, Vladimir. It's very 
interesting uh, to really build the business from your knowledge of being the farmer. Um, how big is your current revenue and market traction? So basically in Russia, where we ended up in Russia in the February 2022, we had our own farm of 500 square meters producing 10 tons of mushrooms per month. Uh, two uh, pilots going on. Uh, mushroom farm produced around uh, 50,000 uh, euro recurring revenue monthly with 20K of profits before tax. And uh, pilots were worth around uh, well, 400,000 euro each with projected recurring revenue for our company, 150,000 euro per year. This is the economics will be the same in Europe, but we closed all our business in Russia and needed to escape the war. So for now, we do not have any recurring revenue. We only just here uh, from December, uh, now we just gathered, we received an approval of banking loan. So, uh, so basically we can start with establishing our farm. Within 10 months from now, we can build our farm and it will generate around 10 to 15 tons of mushrooms per month with, recur with recurring revenue of 100 to 150K per month and uh, around 15 to 20% uh, of profits. And we have around 20 pre-orders from Dafli region, Canada, United Arab Emirates for the farm themselves. Each one worth around 400,000 K with the same recurring revenue per year, around 150,000 or so. I think the pitch deck probably have to be polish a little bit more so we get to see like what your revenue projection gonna look like uh, for these opportunities. So to be clear, I think right now you are in the process of starting up a new business model that you're not only gonna be uh, producing mushroom yourself, but actually will sell hardware slash software as a service for other people to grow mushroom. So that's okay. a new group. So basically, when we're talking about farm sales, uh, we uh, our main business model is to sell the mycelium, actually, that we produce by ourselves on our farm. This is the consumable for the farms, but basically it is the mushroom seeds. And uh, this is our main recurring revenue stream. Obviously, for that, we need to cover hardware and software. And we uh, do not produce the hardware. We just uh, sell it from the contract factories with a small markup of 15 to 20%. And yes, to sell a farm, I need to be operating one farm per world or per region. So one farm per Europe and, for example, one farm per US. Uh, so the VCs and customers for my farms can see that the unit economics works, everything is nice looking, everything works. That's why, obviously, we start with own mushroom production. And uh, like when after 10 months, uh, we start this mushroom production and basically it feeds all the R&D team. And we are a profitable company. We are not bound in timing to the next round, although we will obviously do that and raise next rounds to uh, expand more quickly. 
to clarify, how many of the mushroom farms did, didn't you say you sold some of the mushroom farms while you were in Russia to Russian? We uh, had two agreements with two retailers. Uh, so basically Metro Cash and Carry, which we're also approaching here in Dakhli region. Uh, they uh, wanted to actually buy a farm to place near their warehouse. So we run it and they get the exact uh, negotiated net cost of the mushrooms really next door to their warehouse. I do not think that it will be the case in Europe and mostly they won't go, the retailers won't go into production themselves, but uh, this is the case. The second one was with Magnit, the biggest Russian retail chain. Uh, the deal was actually the same scheme that we are introducing here. So basically they give us demand in each region where we, they have uncovered demand in locally produced mushrooms. And we cover that with our farms or by building them by ourselves or finding a buyer for the farm. Do you have a team to go to market in Europe? Uh, for the marketing side and for the uh, like business side, uh, I'm the only one for now who is responsible for the business part, but we'll also already have a strong advisors. For example, Michael Stelzen, he is CEO of the biggest food attestation lab in, in Austria and possibly in Dakhli region. And basically with his help, we're going into retailers. And uh, yeah, basically that's it because it is B2B personal sales mostly. Mushroom farming is a small world for now in Europe and US. It, is, has, it has a potential to grow like 200, 300% more. Uh, but it is like in Austria, there are only five mushroom farms. That's all. And we can build another 50 because the demand is there. And only, for example, in Austria, 11% of mushrooms are produced in the country. Others are imported. And we can replace everything uh, with local production, which is really cool for local, uh, for local consumer. I have a question regarding your um, competitive environment. So you mentioned that kind of in... In some countries, you know, there aren't a lot of mushroom farms, so it's difficult to to do it in a profitable way. Um, but what kind of kind of mushrooms can you grow? A any kind of mushrooms, and be kind of again, what are your in a bit more detail? What are your USPs versus your competitors? Because I can see a lot of parallels to, um, for example, the insect um, kind of farms that are now. Um, you know, it's getting uh, quite popular right now. There's a lot of startups doing like black soldier fly farming. And then you have, you know, of course, the vertical farms growing different kinds of crops. So you get into those nitty gritty details then about kind of, uh, you know, your business model might be your advantage, but it might be the technology. So I would like to, to hear your views on that. And uh, second question is regarding kind of what are the three top things that could derail you from execu executing your business plan apart from um, financing or funding? So uh, let's start with a, a little uh, look through the market. So basically 80% of mushroom market in the world are champignons and 80% of mushroom production market is located in Asia. Uh, there are many competitors there. Uh, we are talking not about farms because our uh, parts of our systems can be sold to farms. For example, hardware, mycelium, software, the existing, even big mushroom producers 
can uh, buy this from us. And basically we had pilots with existing mushroom farmers from in Russia where we basically automated the low tech mushroom farm and they increased their efficiency like three times in three months. Mm-hmm. And basically uh, that's uh, the, in, uh, in China, in Asia, there are many hardware producers for mushroom farming, but there is no uh, other company in the world that is producing a turnkey solution for mushroom farming that is covering everything with the production planning, uh, automation, hardware, and microbiology such as mycelium and so on. Uh, thanks to all of these like innovations, because we never, uh, invented our own substrate machine, our own climate control units, our own algorithms for production planning. Uh, nobody plans the production of mushroom farms for now. They just operate on full capacity each day. And basically, we uh, the average margin of mushroom farms everywhere in even giant facilities in t- is 10% per month. We have from 20 to 35%, depending on labor costs uh, in each country. In Russia, we had 35, 40%. In Austria, we're looking into 20, 25%. And yes, we can grow any types of mushrooms uh, that are industrially cultivated. This means that we can't grow truffles, for example. They do the symbiosis with the tree and this can't be done indoors way. And then there is another part of competitors who are possible competitors for city farming companies, but not, they are not because uh, mushrooms do not do photosynthesis. They do breathing a lot. And uh, basically on 3000 square meter farm of salads, you can just open a window and you will be okay. Uh, For each 500 cubic meters of air of growing room for mushrooms, I will be pumping in 15,000 cubic meters of air every hour to reduce the CO2 levels. And uh, I need to do that with the margin of error of 1% humidity or I will lose my yield. So basically there is really different uh, engineering going on in these fields, in insect farming, in mushroom farming, in city farming and uh, direct competitors, we we have none. But obviously the hardware producers, the mycelium providers from uh, Asia and the software providers from Netherlands, there are two companies there, uh, are part of our competition. Thank you. And- um, Ah, yes, second question, sorry. Yeah, Uh, so basically the main thing here uh, is obviously it is a city farming startup. Uh, And there are two questions with these uh, kind of city farming companies. First of all, if we can scale it quick enough to generate actual exponential growth, we are not sure with that. And uh, basically, uh, as soon as it is B2B business with big checks, uh, we can stumble upon scaling. We still will be operationally profitable company and we will grow, uh, uh, but we can fail to scale exponentially. And the next thing that obviously on this market, there is no end buyer for our company. In the city that we have like, we have a, a decade already for developing city farming companies. And basically there are two models of sort of an exit for them. First of all, 
going to IPO. Uh, and basically, they many of them did it. And the second one, to on some scale, to convert yourself to a production company because nobody wants to buy your company. This is all profitable ways, but it can be an issue for a VC. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, open and honest answer. <laughs> well, it could also be an exit to an ABB or Bula, so uh, companies that produce food production uh, or food manufacturing equipment. Possibly, possibly, but there is no like Facebook and Google that can buy you out in this field. Uh, when you have, for example, when you are operational in Europe and US and have big international business, there is no such a player. Mm -hmm. The other like idea of it, uh, the main, like all ultra fresh segments in all countries in the world are now delivered to retail under retail brands. There is no, you, you can't name the brand of the salads or mushrooms that you buy every day. <laughs> so basically this is because nobody can assure that they will deliver consistently with the consistent quality and they take different suppliers for different weeks. And basically if we build such a brand, but this is not like our main business and I'm not an expert in brand strategy, yeah? Uh, so, but if we build such a brand internationally, then we can sell it to Unilever, for example. So it is a possible way, but there is much work to be done on this way. You could also sell to Bayer or Rausch if you made these yeah. into magic mushrooms for countries where magic mushrooms are being legalized because you need some consistent way to produce those and have kind of factory or lab scale quality. Yeah, you are perfectly right. This is like, uh, for example, um, not only magical mushrooms, but uh, like dietary supplements, mushrooms, these are another market. They are grown on the same conditions, like uh, with the same uh, net cost of one kilogram, but they have much higher retail prices. So basically we can do that where it is legal. In Austria, we can do uh, dietary supplements market uh, mushrooms, and we are looking forward to legalizing chilzebin mushrooms in like five years. But obviously, for now, this is a U.S. market for that. You might be able to. You might be able to as well have kind of micro exits by selling off brand. You sell off the U.S. division to Kroger. You sell off the european division to tesco or whatever that happens to be so they can cut their costs on their mushroom production yeah it it is a nice idea because we didn't thought about it and this is a good one what wouldn't the unit economics be much more interesting if you would sell the mushrooms itself rather than selling their equipment this is a question more uh, about my uh, my own like ambitions as a founder because uh, when selling uh, mushroom farms as a service, I can scale up really really fast. But when I am like doing the retail strategy, for example, this is a possible strategy for us. Like I I buy land, then put a building, then get a loan uh, for the, uh, using this building as a collateral for my business and do it uh, like over and over again in different countries. Uh, my way to like uh, being uh, a major player in mushroom farming in Europe and US will take me around 30 years. But when I'm selling mushroom farms as a service, I can do it within 10 years. 
And this is what I'm intentionally want to do because yeah, 30 years is too much for me. <laughs> Understood, thanks. If we gave you a hundred million dollars today, what would you do? <laughs> uh, nobody would give it me, but uh, this is a good question. We already talked with you, Matt, about exiting. Uh, obviously, for now, as soon as we are migrants and we can't go back to our own country, uh, because all all male members of our team, me included, uh, get got mobilization invoices. That means that as soon as cross the border of Russia, I will be sent straight to Ukrainian war, and uh, that's why we can't go back. Actually, and that's why uh, our current ambitions are really small. We want to establish ourselves in new country in the next one or two years and build a, a sustainable business that can feed us and our families. But this doesn't mean that uh, we won't scale <laughs> uh, up to the whole world. And obviously with 100 million, I would consider exiting this business uh, but I think it is really interesting to do it, and I will still do it. <laughs> oh, no, I meant 100 million investment. What would you do to scale the company? Ah, that's cool thing. My uh, plans extend only to tens of millions. <laughs> so I would basically, uh, as soon as we, are, we know our unit economics, we know that it is working, although like we need to prove that on different labor costs in different countries, but we already ran the farm and this is uh, really easy for us to do now. Uh, we would open several divisions in several countries uh, to uh, just start on different markets simultaneously. This is firstly uh, Europe and US, and then we will engage the actually really, really strong strengthen our R&D department because the main market for us, although US and Europe has no competition and we can scale up pretty quickly, the main mar uh, market is Asia. And there are many, many producers there. But to enter Asian markets, we need a strong IP protection. We need to develop the actual like optimization of all processes of the farm. So we can go farm by farm in Asia and tell them like, look, do like that. You will get 30% less losses uh, and costs and you will increase your profits by 20%. And that will be selling really, really good in Asia. And that's what I will be doing with this money. Um, so, a lot of stuff that you do in your kind of um, system, um, like climate control, humidity control, uh, production control, all of that, production planning, sorry, um, that, that could also be, of course, a um, good value proposition for a lot of other kind of use cases or applications, not just mushrooms, of course, you know, we mentioned insect farming, some other things. So have you kind of considered, do you consider doing the kind of adjacent markets to mushrooms in the future? Any crops or plants? Uh, we can't do plants because it is a wholly different story. So we do not have lights on the farms. We just emulate yeah. the like uh, night and day for mushrooms. And that's all we do not do photosynthesis and so on. That's why actually the electricity bill for us is only 
3% of the unit economics of the farms and in city farming it can be 30. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, possibly insect farming, uh, but we we just haven't explored that yet. We thought about it, but we haven't time to explore uh, that. Uh, obviously, the ERP system can be adjusted because it is like it is a prediction model, like for example, uh, SAP, uh, and basically it can be sold to other industries. But we, for now, do not know the exact applications. Gotcha. Thank you. Any last questions, folks? Awesome, then, Vlad. Thanks for pitching. Thanks for sharing what you guys are doing. Thank Hello. you, Vlad. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would be great if we could buy more mushrooms at the store and they were a little cheaper. I just love yeah. munching on mushrooms for some reason. Not the magic kind, folks. That's not what we're talking about here. But um, I want to I wanna transition things over. So we talked a bit about the Partner in Climb program. And now to to piggyback off of that a bit, We've got Greg with Myro on the program. Greg's going to share. He's graduating the program. They're raising a, a seed round now. I think they've got two-thirds committed, but he will tell you more about that and how they're transforming. Oh, no, wrong click. How they're transforming the, the future of not just hospitality, but cosmetics. Greg, Thanks, Matt. You, get a, you get the presentation ready while I kick everybody out because I used the wrong button, and then you'll have your five minutes. All right, let me know when you can see my screen. Looks good. Your five minutes starts now. Take it away. All right, awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. So I'm Greg. I'm going through graduating from Matt's program. So thank you for taking a risk on us, Matt. Uh, so the company is called Myro, and we're fundamentally in the business of changing disposability culture. So we're attacking this from the anti-waste angle. Now, the two things that uh, you know, I'm sure all of you are aware that we think are very positive signs happening in the market is you know, consumers are demanding anti-waste uh, elements in everything that they see and experience in their life, and then governments are really stepping up the pressure. So the way that we're conceptualizing a business is that we are um, an anti-waste uh, business that's focusing specifically on products around the shower. And um, the goal here is to basically turn these shower products from disposables and re to into refillables. And our primary um, distribution area is a hospitality business. So we're sort of we're a B2B company with a consumer brand attached to it. So let's talk a little bit more about it. Um, so the basic distribution runs into two types of channels. Um, the first one is, and the main one is the hospitality channel. So the idea here is that we figure out a way how to eliminate uh, plastic from the you know those little mini shampoos that you experience in hotels and we do that by basically designing and developing concentrates so imagine hair care products shampoo products um, body wash products that don't have any water and then the hotel reconstitutes those products on site into a full experience that you would used to now that technology came to be by you know, investing uh, a fair amount of capital and building these formulations and experiencing these formulations with a direct-to-consumer model. So we decided to use the D2C as a perfect R&D vehicle because as you all know, consumers are very vocal about things that work and don't work. So we thought that the best way to perfect the technology is by basically building a little brand that we can directly go and sell and ask consumers whether the experience works. So to put it in the perspective, we sold over a million units of the consumer side, which allowed it to iterate quite a bit. And now we're entering the, the actual market that we've envisioned. 
Um, so the big secret behind kind of creating this momentum and movement for us has really been bringing in along uh, people that have megaphones. So we've been lucky enough to attract a lot of uh, athletes um, that have, you know, followers in the tens of millions of uh uh scale and that gives us an ability to uh sell into large scale brands because all of these large scale brands want to be dealing with with uh, companies that they can recognize uh so here's how the kind of the r d side of the consumer uh part looks it's all beautiful it all has a permanent container and then most of our formulas are either concentrated or they have a reusable component to them so that's the kind of like the D2C side that you know speaks to Hilton's and Marriott's of the world, and then the hospitality side looks very different. That's the again that's the business designed for a particular channel. So we've taken our concentrates and we've scaled them up into about a gallon-sized jugs, and then we've divide, developed these uh, specialty dilution devices that get installed at hotels. So hotels plug in one end into the tap water source, the other end goes into the concentrate bottle, and they just press a button. So a good comp to think about is what we're doing here with kind of these body care and hair care products. The same thing that Pepsi has done with uh, restaurants across the world, right? Pepsi doesn't ship you diluted, you know, Pepsi products, it ship you powder and then you dilute at home. So you dilute in, in the restaurants. So we're doing the same thing for hospitality. Um, it's a massive industry, you know, it's about $3 billion worth in the US, it's about $10 billion worth globally. Um, right now we have, we're working on uh, pilots uh, for fall of this year um, with about three property management groups. Um, collectively, they represent around 650 properties. So the idea is that you pilot in you know, 10 hotels each, you prove out economics behind being cheaper because you eliminate water from the equation. One minute being faster, being faster to refill uh, because you're eliminating a lot of the labor costs associated with refilling and hopefully a better product. Um, so but the good news for us is that the there's a lot of momentum there behind the regulation. So there's bans in the US, there's bans in, in Europe, there's bans in Asia. So we're riding on that um, idea that the government's catalyzing the change in hospitality behavior. And by the way, we're the only one in the market. Uh, there's a pretty vibrant uh, cleaning market that already uses concentrates, but it's really hard to do it at scale for stuff that goes on your skin. Uh, so to put it to the context, I'll skip ahead. Uh, the mar the business has roughly 50 to 70% margin and every hotel is worth about $15,000 a year. So when you do the math, this translates into a pretty kind of rapid scale program. Um, you know, we're not up putting it into the operating model, but uh, you know, 650 hotel pipeline alone is $10 million recurring revenue business. So with that said, we're raising a seed round of 3 million. Time is lead investor. Awesome. So let me just. Uh, so how much? Got how much investor. you got? How much space you got left? Uh, well, none. <laughs> um, oh. So we got about half a million, uh, half a million left in the round. Two and a half committed. So the point of this is to basically close out half a million bucks. Awesome. And I will pull in the other panelists, turn off the screen sharing, and kick things over to Arvind. You want to go first? I think you're on mute. You got to be able to read lips Thanks. for the show. Thanks. Uh, hi, Greg. Thanks for the pitch. So um, just wanted to kind of ask you about this year's revenue. So you're projecting um, increase of your revenues from $2 million last year to $4 million this year. 
um, kind of where are you right now and kind of um, how much of this 2 million increase is really covered by your pipeline and how much uh, is yet to be covered? So this year's projection is actually primarily focused on the e-com side, just because the pilots are about six month uh, engagements. So the revenue for, for the pilots really kicks in in 2024. So this year's revenue increase is just pure inertia coming from just pumping out these products and just selling more of them either on e-com or on wholesale, which we see as not necessarily the long-term strategic opportunity, but we see that as a brand building exercise. And what we, the thing that we found about um, kind of approaching and dealing with this uh, hospitality market is that when you have a conversation with Hilton or Marriott or, you know, you name it, one of the big guys, um, they want to know that the brand is well-developed so that their guests have the benefit of a recognized brand. So to answer your question, uh, the pipeline revenue uh, from these pilots is all baked in 2024. Gotcha. Thank you. And what is your kind of ideal client profile in terms of a hotel right now? Uh, so the ideal uh, ideal customer is actually not a hotel. It's a property management group that manages multi-properties. So the ideal uh, customer is, um, you know, a property management team that, are, let's say, manages about 50 to 200 hotels. So they're just big enough to have scale, but small enough to sort of not have a too stiff of a corporate structure. Uh, and that type of a customer allows us to pilot within a subset of their hotels that they have the most flexibility in. And then based on the KPIs that we set together, expand into, you know, a whole two pool of 200. And because, uh, you know, this thing scales pretty quickly, um, you can do the math at $15,000 per hotel per year on a recurring basis, 200 hotels is a, is a nice chunk of, you know, recurring revenue that you get off of that. Thank you. And maybe I go next. Um, can I get an intro to Camelo? <laughs> and, uh, and, Serena to and Serena too, if you want to be scared. Are you ready? To, are you ready to write the check? Then absolutely. Certainly, <laughs> selling argument. Um, no, thanks for the presentation. Um, in fact, the main issue I'm struggling with is defensibility um, of your product because I think I've seen quite a few of those startups. I really like your approach of going direct, um, not direct to customer, but doing hospitality because uh, then you don't have to do as much um, um, marketing and your customer acquisition costs are more manageable. But um, yeah, how do you make sure that it's not being copied? Yeah, so the answer is simple. So first of all, we've got three patents and a bunch of uh, kind of behind the scenes MP that we're not you know, interested in patenting. So it's a pretty healthy portfolio of moats that we built just sort of, you know, from a intellectual property kind of strategy perspective. Uh, but more importantly, what you're referencing is um, there's a, quite a few players in the cleaning space. Um, there's actually uh, barely anybody in the skin, the stuff that goes on your skin because it's a lot more complicated. So when you basically have to worry about how the product uh, feels in your hair or how uh, it feels in your skin when you get out of the shower, it gets a hell of a lot more complicated. Um, so our strategy is to basically use a combination of, um, again, kind of standard modes of so patents, uh, you know, trade secrets. Um, we've gone as far as actually bringing in one of our key manufacturers onto the cap table and sit on our board so that we can protect the investment. 
Um, but then the, that's so that's number one. But then the secondary thing is just the the reality of the complexity of the technical process. Mm. And do you produce it yourself, or do you have a contractor to do it for you? Um, so we have a contract manufacturer that we've uh, created the formulation with, and uh, we essentially brought in our IP into that manufacturer. We can't produce it ourselves because part of the one of the key modes here is um, incredibly expensive. Being dependent on that uh, manufacturer, is there several that can do it, or is that only or is there only very few players? Yeah, it's several. It's several, but uh, you eliminate the risk by bringing them into the family. Mm. And they've learned that lesson already. Yeah. So I mean, literally, uh, they are investing and uh, sitting on our board. So it's uh, they. You know, the language that we use with them is sort of a joint venture type. That's how they see. It. That's how we protect IP. Uh, that's how we ensure that things don't get you know messed up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And where'd you get the fifty percent cost savings for the hotels from? So that's that's the basic model. Is not only is it kind of a better product, but it's also significantly cheaper. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. So, so the sad reality is that uh, when you deal with um, kind of property management groups, I mean, they they could care less about sustainability. They care about uh, P&Ls. And the selling proposition for them is that we basically cut the cost by eliminating water. It's as simple as that. Right now, their model is to take either the little mini bottles that they have to change anyway, um, or uh, take the big bulk things that you probably saw in the shower whenever you stayed at the hotels, so they're 95% water. So eliminating shipping of that water is where the cost savings come in on the product side. And then the secondary benefit is that hotel P&Ls live or die labor costs. So by make, making the refilling process up to 90% faster, you're cutting out time. So you're making labor more efficient. So that together, so labor plus the product cost translates into just a, a better profitability of the final end product. So maybe I'll jump in here as well. So a lot of hotels already that cares about ESG, they already start with the, um, you know, the fix to the wall, uh, shampoo, conditioners, and the shower gel. And uh, your perspective and argument is that they are reducing the amount of shipping costs uh, for those products because, uh, the amount of water in this case is a lot less. Uh, but what about the fact that um, the product is formulated to have a lot of water in the first place because some of these cleaning agent is too harsh on the skin. It's like base that's gonna peel your skin and things like that. So that's why it's formulated to be more diluted in the first place and also, the fact that when they have the uh, skincare product fixed to the wall, they can choose, they can shop any brand for the refill. So in this case, uh, what do you think is the decisive factors that would make the brand switch to using your products? So the let me answer your question, starting with the last one. Um, so what makes hotels switch? Cost. Cost. That's the, that's the decisive factor. They care about cost reductions in the product itself, as well as the labor associated with the refilling. So that's that's ultimately what they're about. Now, when you think about the end, end experience, 
the guest that is in the room doesn't experience any anything different than the, the than they're used to because the hotel does the dilution of a concentrate into the final product um, on site. So the end experience for you as a guest is exactly the same as you would experience now when you have uh, those bulk packages attached to the shower. So that doesn't really change. Uh, we're not asking for, to get... Yeah, for the incumbent products, right? You don't really need any labor to do dilution. You just uh, get it out. You, you need labor to do refilling. The labor to do refilling is quite extensive because what happens with these current incumbent products is that uh, housekeeping has to either bring pretty heavy bottles into the room and then refill them manually by essentially opening up a bottle, you know, lifting this heavy thing, pouring it yeah. into every three of the shower packs or running an assembly line in the basement of a hotel that is highly time intensive because you literally have to take a big size bottle and using a funnel, refill it. So it's the, it's the labor associated with uh, refilling these things behind the scenes that is a major cost factor for hotels. So our solution is that not only you reduce cost by just not shipping water around in the first place, but you're also um, incredibly more efficient by using a gas pump-like uh, machine as opposed to just doing it manually. And you reduce climate emissions a ton because basically you're shipping 90% of the product is water that you don't have to then ship. We certainly reduce CO2, we reduce plastic waste, uh, and this is something that the brand people at Hilton's of the world love to hear, but that's not the PL argument for hotel operators. And the IP, what does the IP cover? Um, it's everything from packaging to concentrate technology. So they, the concentrate tech, like how do you basically make the you know shampoo feel like it, you know, is an amazing hair product uh, in the concentrated form that gets diluted across all types of tap water. So one big uh, complicated technical challenge that we have overcome is that tap water across the world is incredibly different. In the US alone, there's like 13 different types of tap water, different concentrations, different mineral uh, weights. So you have to work, make sure that on a chemical level, that product feels incredibly uh, consistent and is uniform. So it's, uh, it's the same, again, like the best analogy that I keep coming back to, it's the Coca-Cola machine in every single restaurant analogy, right? Um, they, you know, they are figured out how to make Coca-Cola taste exactly the same with, uh, by shipping restaurants powder. And that's exactly the same model that we're after. What does the 3 million get you to in terms of traction results and where you would be at for a potential Series A or profitability? Yeah, so the three million gets us to about you know from a sort of a run rate perspective. If you think about like when that cash not runs out, but when we deploy that cash, it's around a two and a half year runway. So at that point in time, we should be well on track to be you know a twenty five million dollar run rate company. Biggest struggle, biggest risk. <laughs> um, I mean, the biggest risk is that, um, you know, we're dealing with a, a very much a buddy-buddy um, market. So property management, um, property management business is a relationship business. So breaking into that relationship business is um, complicated. Uh, now, our solution to that is to bring in people who are in that business on board. So that's why... Um, you know, we're kind of very subtly picked the property manager groups that we're launching with, and we're giving them some uh, sweeteners 
uh, on the deal so that they're, they own part of the upside and they have the incentive to essentially break us into that market. So the way that it looks like is that you know, initial customers are going to be co-owners uh, and equity co-owners in the business and will have the benefit of not only uh, being the first customers, but also being the validators that this is the solution for the category. But that's the that's the risk. Any last questions, folks? I actually invested in a very similar company two years ago. Uh, that was D2C. And the main issue was that uh, the supplier didn't deliver. So it's good that you have these guys on board. And um, the basket size, they did direct to customer. The basket size was too small to cover or to make it profitable. So, yeah, uh, the D2C your business has solved a lot of the issues, which I really like. 100%. Look, the D2C business, I mean, it, it, you know, it has a lot of issues that, like, just like any other D2C business. Um, I've always viewed it as um, it's a like it's a it's a nice shiny object on a hill. You have to have it because uh, hotel uh, operators, hotel brands expect you to have it. So you need to do it. You need to have Carmelo on it and all of these other things. Um, but as a as a cash cow, it, it's not it. Now onto the cash cow. Well, thanks for pitching, Craig. Thanks for taking part in the program as well. And uh, tonight, I think I'll recuse myself from choosing the company of the night, and I'll let you guys do it for uh, conflict of interest and all of that perspectives. But I want to pass things over. Greg's trying to get rid of plastic and reduce uh, reduce kind of pollution. Well, now we got a company who's uh, helping kick up recycling. Uh, Dovi, you want to take it away with Qui78 or Key78 or however? I got to pronounce the name wrong at least once. So, Dovi, you want to share a bit more about you, John? Yeah, sure. Let me... Share my screen. There we go. Well, hello and thank you, Matt. Um, and hello, everyone. I'm Dovi. I'm co-founder and COO of Key78. My co-founder and CEO, Dan, apologizes that he can't be with us as he has a prior family engagement. Um, Key78 is the key for brands to enable consumer-powered recycling. It's a new comm channel being deployed through the recycling of consumer packaged goods, addressing ESG actions and sustainable development goals, budgets, whilst tackling the $441 billion consumer packaging waste problem. Um, it's very apparent that brands are nearly completely blind on recycling data. There's no system in place for brands to track their products recycled status and even more shockingly, brands don't know who is consuming or recycling their products. Additionally, very little is actually being done to incentivize people to recycle. And all of this creates a trust gap between brands and consumers that we're looking to fill. We're creating a direct and quantifiable link, the Key78 digital on-pack recycling mark between dollars spent by brands on their sustainable development goals and the volume of their recycled products. A live ticker feed on brands' own websites via our API displays real-time data of recycled products so that brands do indeed meet their sustainable development goals. The consumer-led activation of a circular economy allows brands to track recycling status and through last mile engagement, 
build loyalty, trust, and fun for purchases that don't create waste. Our solution tracks recycled waste, incentivizes and rewards recyclers, and is brand's last mile interaction for next purchase influence. <clears throat> Established recycle hubs and bins can be identified through GPS. And similarly, people will be able to set up recycle bins at home, work, or even in the community. The consumer scans the product, activates the bin and disposes, and then their reward is delivered. P78 is a new recycling mark. Whilst this space remains somewhat uncontested, it's not to say that there's no direct competition. Creative agencies and brands can create their own in-house solutions and QR technology providers could up their game and deploy similar systems to compete against us. By the same token, established recycling hubs and hotspots could pivot their business models to be more in line with Key78. Though do note that Key78's platform and mark is so disruptive that people will be able to recycle with ease at places of work and in their homes anywhere in the world. We're introducing our solution to food and beverage brands and to supermarket own label brands. Our business model incorporates subscription packages direct to brands and promotion packages through third-party ad agencies. And whilst brands are building up their data sets, we're building much larger data sets of profile of recycler, product recycled, and the place in which it was recycled. We're bootstrapped and at pre-seed, though much has been validated. Our tech has been incognito for the last couple of years in the whiskey industry, ironing out the bugs and glitches. And we're talking to brands and introducing them to Key78. And we've been fortunate enough to develop an amazing team, one which I am particularly humbled by the, their humility and uh, their genius. Um, it's always nice to actually work with people that you think are just better than you. Um, we are seeking to raise 500,000 to start us on our journey and allow us to build out our technology solution and brand, making products, people, and the planet better One through minute. a digitized Warning. mark of respect and trust. Thank you. I'm done. Oh, okay. You still got a minute if you want to do anything. Otherwise, well, I'll, I'll open it up for the questions because we're, I can see from a, a lot of people have significantly better traction. We have kind of been on a journey for the last 15 months and what started out as one thing has led to something else which pivoted to something else and we kind of found this um kind of the inspiration came from the fact that brands do not communicate with consumers they communicate with customers and kind of the two great examples that I'd love to give if you have a piece of white paper and you draw a black dot in the middle everyone will comment on the black dot and ignore all the space around that black dot and it's similar to the mother that goes to the shop and she buys that box of cocoa pops she's one purchaser but there are many people that engage with that box and it's about being able to create this com channel between consumer and brand and what we realized is is that if you go in at the end of the market if you go into that moment where people are actually disposing of it and forgetting about it it's at that moment that you can actually offer people the ability to buy more to engage with them more to give them something more and so we then kind of did those deep dives and read those academic papers some of which are referenced in the deck and some which i can talk about ad nauseam but essentially you've got um <clears throat> the unknown of 
Um, who is recycling? What is recycling? But uh, beyond that, people are not incentivized to do so. And studies were conducted to demonstrate that when incentivization takes place for recycling, two things occur. More people recycle and more products are recycled. So incentivization is definitely a massive draw factor to get people to do things. Now, what's happening at the moment is that people are incentivizing, but very, very limitedly so. They're either incentivizing people by saying, if you bring um, this glass bottle to this bank, then we may give you five cents in return. But you're then limited to the amount of bottles you can bring, when the store is open, how many times a week you can actually go and dispose of it. Um, so we then started to pivot that, to pivot that, to pivot that, to try to encompass what it is we really want to achieve, which is that brand to consumer communication, offering that last mile influence, which will reward the recycler, benefit the brand, and ultimately benefit the planet. And where are you at today then in terms of the status of that? The status we're at today is we have, we've got our ducks in order for us to be able to go to market within four months beyond funding. We need the funding to be able to pull the tech out from the incognito mode and develop it with our own IP. Um, we have started already speaking to brands to introduce them to the concept and to introduce them to the solution. We're in the process now of working with them to get those letters of intent and letters of intention to come on board as customers. We've, we've got the different teams that we need in place, initially quite skeletal teams, but teams in place to um, drive those sales in the particular markets and also work with municipalities to be able to actually, you know, GPS locate some of those recycle bins. We could actually do a little bit more guerrilla marketing from that perspective, where we could actually go around and um, attach some sort of key to those bins, with obviously with the approval of the, the municipals, municipalities. But um, the where, where we're at at the moment is we're kind of we're chugging along in order to be able to get that funding, to be able to build the tech, to be able to deploy. Thanks, Zavi. I guess um, my question was around how do you avoid fraud, right? Because you have an incentive to just get the reward without actually recycling it properly. And how do you make sure that they actually recycle it right? Because the purity of the material streams is obviously important for recyclability. Um, so, so do you have a mechanism in place? I guess you mentioned a GPS location or tags. Um, how do you do that? So every, every key that is produced is actually individuated. Um, kind of the, the, the key itself, it comes from the inspiration of the platinum atom, which is my background. But the, what, what we do is, is that through the API, every single product is individuated and therefore every single key that is created is individuated and independent. When that key is scanned, the location of the recycling bin needs to either be scanned, meaning there's a static key that's in place on those bins, or they are part of the system that's already been pre-generated through the GPS to locate that recycling point. Now, we will know through a, through a scan, through the automation, if one recycles, for example, a glass bottle and tries to deposit in a um, 
uh, in a paper bin, it's not going to recognize the, uh, the, the it's not going to recognize the product for the bin. So what you essentially need to do is first, you there, there are two scans or two identifiers that need to take place. You've got the scanning of the product itself, and then you've got either the scanning of the, of the bin or the location of the bin. But the beauty of it is that with simple household goods, where we know that, and I use the UK as an example, only because that's where I'm from and I have the most experience in terms of recycling. Um, it's very different in Israel because I actually have to go to recycle, whereas in the UK it's collected for recycle. Yeah. But you know, the, you you have the ability, for example, through the GPS, kind of through the gamification in inverted commas of recycling, to for people in their street to identify each of their recycle bin as a as a as a uh, pivot, as a pointed recycle bin. So. Yes, there, there is always the possibility that somebody's going to try to cheat the system. Um, but bear in mind, they are kind of their profile is registered within the system to be able to recycle product at a particular point of recycling. Mm. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> Please do. But still, I have the location of the product. I can just scan every bottle 20 times and then throw in one bottle. Every bottle 20 times against one particular location. Exactly. Like uh, would... well, you would you, you could you can only you can only recycle one bottle once. You can recycle 20 bottles at one location, but you wouldn't be able to recycle one bottle 20 times over because one bottle can only be recycled once. Because the code actually identifies that yes. product, not the category. Because every, 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 every code, every code is individuated. Ah, okay. So, so it's not on the product level, but on the, oh, it's on the product level, not on the. It's on the product level. So kind of if we fast forward nice. three years down the line, in terms of the scope for key beyond the recycling, we're able, if God forbid, you know, kind of there's a poison that is, you found in a particular tub of uh, yogurt, we're actually able to go back to the actual individual tub of yogurt and work out from there, as opposed to just clear 100,000 tubs of yogurt, because on the safe side, we need to do that. Mm. And um, thank you. Now I understood. Um, who's paying you? How much? Uh, uh, who are our customers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How much are they paying? Because I guess you can get your supermarkets for, or retailers, but also the municipalities to uh, to pay you for your service. So, again, this is kind of a pivot of a pivot, and we're on this journey. Um, this is very much the focus what we're doing today. Pardon me. At the moment, we have no customers. At the moment, we are pre-MVP, we're pre-POC. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, we're using the data that we've accumulated from the incognito mode and applying it conceptually to what we're doing. Who our customers will be? We're looking at food and beverage companies. We're looking at supermarket own labels. Those companies, pardon me, those companies that are having much more regular print runs of packages, it's much easier for us to deploy uh, programs with them quicker than it would be much, the larger brands that are you know, doing print runs every six months or as opposed to print runs every two months. Um, but it's not limited to food and beverage. 
It can be on any single consumer packaged goods. So whether it's shoeboxes, whether it's, um, you know, plastic flower holders, whether it's even, you know, what Lara was talking about in terms of the pregnancy testing, all of these things are currently either being disposed of poorly or being disposed of within limit within certain limitations. What we're kind of opening up is to allow people to the freedom of the recycling within a trusted environment. But yes, the municipalities may well want to have kind of pilots being conducted through them. Those are, those are some of the conversations we're having now with my local municipality here. So I'm, we're trying to work kind of a pilot scheme through guerrilla marketing, kind of totally bootstrapped of how we're going to be able to actually get, a, get some sort of key on, let's say, a coffee cup with a bin in that coffee in that store specifically for that and gauge that type of that gauge that type of engagement how does this compare to like a uh, deposit refund system because a lot of countries well, already have that for most or in the eu are implementing those so we we have we have deposit refund systems here in israel um they're very tiresome also you're very limited to why is it tiresome day. It's tiresome because you have to always bring your bottles to that place, as opposed to setting up a recycle a recycle bin at home, which is then collected, or which you can then, as one unit, go and drop off as at a um, at a deposit place, where you don't have to go one by one by one by one. But you don't. Are you not still scanning one by one by one by one? Initially, you are. But you're getting the reward for one by one by one by one. What you're what, what's happening with the depositories is that number one, you're limited in terms of time. Number two, you're limited in terms of number. So you can't take if you have a party on a Saturday and you've got seventy bottles of beer left over, it's a big party. Um, but if you if you've got those seventy bottles of beer, you can't take those seventy bottles of beer to a depository and deposit them all in one go. At least not here. You can't leave Maybe them at you home. Can. You can't leave them at home and deposit them in one go either, unless it's a really big container, right? Mm, I'm th again. I'm thinking back to kind of home recycle bins, which are identified as recycle bins, and they are quite they are quite big. And there are startups as well that now work on solutions like crushing those yeah there are startups that do crushing but then you need a special device, and if you're installing yeah. like mass loops device at home, then no, you can't. You can't do that at home. Um, but I, again, I, I'm thinking back more to. I'm trying to juggle what I've experienced in Hong Kong, in the UK, and in Israel. Um, like, for example, in Hong Kong, there are kind of those recycle hubs, but you need to have a minimum of two kilograms. You need to go to a particular place that is going to take those particular materials. Um, it's quite limited. Yeah, like, so I, I have a question. So there's one kind of key piece of info missing, I think, that I'm not getting. So there are a few different startups, at least here in Europe, trying to tackle this problem. You're right, there's kind of different deposit return schemes. And um, it's, it's typically done through like having re retrofitting existing bins, the kind of applying, you know, a certain kind of device onto them or kind of having separate bins for specific purposes like crashing glass, for example. So this retrofitting bins, both kind of, or the special bins, you know, um, there is a way to verify whether 
even if you scanned a glass bottle, for example, it is a glass bottle. Um, yes. And then you can only input a glass bottle in it. You can't input any, anything else. Whereas yes. with those home bins, who's actually responsible for verifying that? Because I can see, um, you know, kind of even if you sign a lot of different recyclers for a lot of those different things that you can recycle at home, um, if they end up, you know, saying that 50% of the bins have wrong items in them, I mean, the whole um, kind of trust the operation will... falls apart. Yeah. Okay. So, in short, on the one hand, you have the static established recycle bins, and then you have the what is classified in the UK um, broad, broad home recycling bins, where pretty much anything apart from plastic bags can be recycled, they can be deposited within them, and then they are taken by the central recycling municipality system. However, an idea which we thought of is targeting, again, going after those that low-hanging fruit of the supermarket home own brands and kind of online grocery shopping and local deliveries is becoming more and more and more and visiting supermarkets is becoming less and less and less. So what's happening is, is that people are actually buying their groceries, they're being delivered to their house, they're being unloaded from the lorry, from the truck. And then all of a sudden what happens is, is that you have this empty space in the truck. Well, the brand's supermarkets that are delivering can actually collect the recycled waste, which has already been prepared by the customer. You've already got that ecosystem in place of the brand having that link with the, with the, the supermarket having that link with the customer. And therefore the customer is able to get their rewards and incentives through their own uh, kind of club card system. So if I order my Tesco shop and my Tesco shop's delivered, but I've actually got my Lenore fabric conditioner box um, ready for collection along with the uh, eggs, my box of eggs and my Kellogg's cornflake box ready for collection. And they've all been scanned and I've got my reward and I know that Tesco have actually picked it up and delivered it and, and taken it away for recycling, then kind of Bob's your uncle and it's uh, it's a very easy solution to implement. So yes, I, again, at the moment, uh, it's not, we haven't yet deployed, so I can't give you um, all the veritable answers vis-a-vis, -vis, well, this will definitely not occur because there's always scope for somebody to try to cheat the system or try to put the wrong product in the wrong bin. But what we, what we do know is, is that through our coding, we're able to, number one, I, every single product is individuated, going back to that. So we know if that product is being printed on a glass bottle or on a packet of cornflakes, and therefore we know whether or not that packet is going to be accepted in the bin that one wants, wants to recycle it. It's like if I if I decide to throw a banana, if I walk past a recycle bin and I throw a banana into the recycle bin, I've just thrown a banana into the recycle bin. But if I'm going around and I'm saying I want to scan this banana to throw into the recycle bin, well, it won't be accepted. It's not to say that somebody won't then do it, but you're not going to receive the reward. So there's no benefit for the consumer other than to actually get rid of the rubbish that they're carrying. I think I want to cut to the chase uh, a little bit. I find 
that you will have to define the MVP very carefully. Brand definitely wants the information where the packaging end up. And there are companies that are able to implement these at scale, such as those companies that are developing the robot sorting so they can see, package, and recognize, package, and aggregate the actual number of package that actually go to recycles. So those are typical the people who can really get the right information to the brand because they know exactly where the plastic bottle ends up. And there are also startup companies that are developing their own container addressing like cafeteria network and things like that. So the cafeteria would charge the consumer extra for the containers. And then when the customer bring back to the recycle, then they get paid. And then this startup company set up a centralized facility to wash the package, re-sanitize, and then bring it back. And they are able to scale very quickly within a year. And, you know, so I think you have a lot of ideas in terms of how you want to develop the hardware, the specific individualized barcode for container, and then go ahead and develop the hardware for the bin for the sorting. But all these are very, very big. I think you have to figure out what the right MVP you can tackle everything. I don't think it's that easy. You have to raise massive amount of money to really instrument the home recycling bin for sorting or the retail, the grocery. I think those are too big. I think you have to narrow down to find out your MVP. What's the fastest way for you to actually have the product and have the customer buy in that are differentiated from others? So that would be my suggestion. Mm -hmm. And, and making less is better than making more. If every person has to have their own lawnmower, everyone gets a shitty lawnmower. If all the neighbors pool together to get one nice lawnmower, you can ride and finish mowing in half the time. So it's like if everyone has to put in an expensive or complicated or climate and carbon intensive recycling device into their home, just a, they just don't a thought. They don't need to do that. They don't need to do that. Um, starting off in terms of where we where we initially intend to deploy, it's within communities where recycling is established, where recycling bins and even home bins are established, where recycling in the office is established. What we're doing is, is that we're making it easier for them to do so and reward them for doing so. Understood. Well, thank Thanks for pitching. I want to make sure we have enough time for everybody. And last but certainly not least, we've got Alessandro with Metric Flow, which is pretty related as well, helping retailers comply with ESG regs. Alessandro, you wanna you wanna take things away? Yes, thank you. Hello, everyone. Let me share my screen. And of course, if you guys are watching or listening and you're still here and you haven't subscribed, do that. The startuptank.com slash YouTube, where you can find us on any major podcast platform download our email list, get access to all, all the free resources we got for climate companies, forward.vc. And now we got Metric Flow and Alessandro. Take it away. Thank you, Matt. Hello, everyone. My name is Alessandro, co-founder and CEO at Metric Flow. And it's a pleasure uh, presenting you tonight how we are empowering retail companies in the sustainability transition. So what's the market situation? Uh, at the moment, climate change is one of the biggest challenges that uh, our society is facing. And retail alone contributes to 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 
once you look into these emissions and you break it down, you realize that over 90% of these actually arise from scope-free emissions. These are indirect emissions of companies coming from their supply chains. So mainly about the production of their products, uh, transportation and use of resources and end of life. Why is it relevant at the moment? Well, new regulations are actually targeting these scope-free emissions to kind of unveil uh, how we actually can achieve decarbonization. And in Europe alone, 50,000 companies will be affected next year, and they're actually not ready for change. Uh, on the right-hand side, you can see some of the regulations coming up. Uh, this year was the first one for Germany and France with uh, AGEC and the Supply Chain Act. Next year, it's CSRD, and we have a few more coming that are actually targeting uh, carbon tax and product environmental footprints. Some of the requirements that these companies have to face next year is around disclosing and measuring scope-free emissions, which is the first time uh, sustainability reporting attached to their financial statements and setting targets to actually reduce uh, these emissions. And part of the, reg uh, the regulatories actually address biodiversity, not only carbon accounting. So it's a much broader aspect around environment. What are the problems that companies are facing with compliance? It's mainly around expertise, processes, and data. Uh, first of all, two, uh, over three-fourths of companies uh, does not measure the impact of their supply chains. They don't have uh, the data or they don't process the data on the actual impact of their suppliers and transportations. Second aspect, the processes are very time-consuming. So currently, companies have very big Excel files, a lot of data collected manually, and uh, actually also finding emission factors on a manual level, which leads to about 44% average error measurements. Finally, most companies have a one-person sustainability department or no sustainability department at all. So next year, they actually have many difficulties uh, meeting the increasing requirements. And that's where metric flow comes in. Uh, a software as a service solution that enables companies to comply with sustainability regulation and supports the role of sustainability manager, making easier to do data collection, uh, calculations using automation and reliable data sets, uh, also for reporting, and develop the overall environmental strategy going beyond CO2 emissions and actually including the full spectrum of uh, resources, for instance, uh, water, energy, and fossil fuels. We work on a first-step basis. Uh, we start with measurement, then we deep dive into analysis on a product and supply chain level, and then we use AI to actually provide reduction scenario modeling. So analyzing how different materials, different suppliers, practices actually affect the overall uh, footprint and impact of the company. And finally, we automate reporting for different standards, whether it's the European Union with the CSRD or uh, the UK and the US uh, with uh, different legislations. Our product is an end-to-end -end platform targeted for purchasing or sustainability managers and facilitates uh, all the reporting aspects. We start with the company carbon footprint across scope one, scope two, scope three. We deep dive in product environmental footprint to actually get very specific data on a product level, and then we connect sustainability reporting and decarbonization action. In terms of market size, the market is growing very fast, uh, double digit expected for the next six years. Already today is about 15 billion opportunity. If we take into account the retail market, this is about 15% of the whole. So 2 billion today expected to more than double in the next five years. 
And this does not consider the market that will be created by the new regulation, which uh, for the big players is mainly taken by large consulting companies. But we have so many companies in, in between uh, that actually are looking for resources and potentially doing this process in-house. One minute warning. In terms of business model, it's a yearly subscription, typical SaaS. Uh, we also have fees in terms of onboarding and consulting, as many companies actually need support in this transition. And we have the pricing based on company size. In terms of go-to-market, we're starting off from the fashion industry. That's where I have a lot of expertise and I built my previous venture. And then we'll expand into food and other retail because there are a lot of synergies in terms of data sets and supply chains. And in Europe alone, the target market is about 17,500 companies. In terms of market landscape, uh, we differentiate from carbon accounting players by taking the full spectrum of resources that a company utilizes. And compared to other players that do product environmental footprint, we actually developed a solution that is fully compliant with all the different aspects. So that time is up. Only needs one player for this. What are you guys looking for? Uh, we're currently opening our pre-seed round. We already have uh, a fourth of that complete. Uh, we're raising 500K to accelerate our go-to-market and product development. Uh, we just launched um, at the end of January. I have currently two pilot projects, one just converted, and have a few clients in the waitlist. And of course, folks, none of this is solicitation. If you decide to reach out or you're doing it of your own, none of it's investment advice, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Tina, do you want to go first this time? What questions you got for Alessandro? Yeah, Alessandro, thanks for the presentation. I found this uh, market to be extraordinarily crowded. And there's so many companies doing carbon accounting of some sort. And it's so crowded so that uh, each of them is trying to diversify, differentiate it. Some would tie it with the carbon credit marketplace to really mitigate. Some would generate uh, the potential uh, method to reduce the carbon footprint. And it is hard to grow because uh, it's hard for the consumer to evaluate different uh, player as well. Um, so how do you think you can be the it company and then become really, really big? How do you go to market? Yeah, that's a really good question, Tina. Thank you. So what, what we've seen in the past, um, starting from 2016, was the rise of uh, sector agnostic carbon accounting players because they only had to report scope one and scope two. Now that scope three is coming into place, we see the rise of vertical players. So you have specific players that focus in one industry because you really need to be an expert in a sector to provide, let's say, useful recommendations. Uh, we have a lot of expertise in fashion. That's why we're starting from that industry. We also have a good network in that space. And uh, the materials and the processes itself, it's a very complicated market. So we're quite sure that a sector agnostic player won't be able to develop uh, many different industries at the same time. So our goal is to become the leader for fashion and then expand into other areas uh, across retail and using distribution partners such as uh, consulting companies that have already a lot of demand for these services and currently are still doing it manually. So actually helping them increase their profit margins by implementing software and for us getting uh, a good sales distribution in place. What is the SAM if you are focused just on the fashion industry? 
If we look at fashion industries, about 4,000 companies in Europe alone. If we take food and retail, then it becomes 17,500. If you take the US, this number probably more than doubles. 4,000 companies in Europe for fashion industry, how much the revenue potential for that? Uh, over 40 million. Uh, the revenue potential for the company? Yeah, for you. Um, so we calculate about twenty to twenty-five thousand as um, average ticket size for the companies. So for thousand of that, that's about um, yeah, eight million. Okay, and uh, eighty million. Sorry, <laughs> eighty million. <laughs> it's so small. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I've got a few questions. So first, kind of, I I echo the sentiment of Tina. I've also kind of met really plenty of kind of players, upcoming players, incumbents in this space. Uh, some try to differentiate kind of by going to different industries, some try to differentiate by kind of um, having, for example, some parts of the platform more um, automatic or, you know, having some AI somewhere in there or, or stuff like that. So apart from kind of your industry focus on fashion, are there any kind of key, you know, technological differentiators, maybe some ways in, in which you, do scope three uh, or is kind of the standard, you know, manual data input process. And um, second question I have is regarding your pricing. So I saw from the slide on your page deck that you're offering um, different price tiers. So the first one is $6,000. Um, the other one is, the next one is 25,000. The third one, I don't remember. Um, but overall compared to some of the other kind of similar startups to you that I've seen is actually um, quite a high pricing point. So again, um, linking it to the first question, um, do you offer something um, extra to be able to also extract this pricing or have you kind of not tested your, your pricing yet? No. Yeah, so we have tested the pricing um, with the pilot projects we have at the moment. Also, you have a very big gap in the market because you have uh, the companies that target SMEs and they're doing really a kind of a price war. You see prices also below 1,000 for, for the year, uh, but these are not very specific uh, kind of companies and usually only target scope one, scope two uh, for the missions. Um, we offer a much more comprehensive platform for sustainability managers. So we also facilitate within the platform all the collaborations that they have with other departments to collect the data. And we have a big layer of automation. So once they, they could link their ERP systems, uh, we built a model to actually make smart assumptions based on where they have gaps in their data. So um, this is an example for product environmental footprint for fashion. According to the regulation, you would need to collect about 160 data points for one single product of production. We can already process products that only have three to four data points because we have many default data sets already assigned to that based on the material, or the country or a specific, uh, let's say, process that a material goes through. So we actually make all this aspect of data collection much, much easier for the companies. And it also results in higher accuracy uh, when you do an assumption. Most companies that do scope free use a spend-based methodology, which means they assign an emission factor based on every euro spent in a category. Uh, but if you work this way, it becomes very difficult to actually acts and reduce the emissions because you don't really know which materials or processes you're going through. And uh, this is the more complex side of things. Uh, this is also one challenge that we're facing uh, by going to clients 
Um, but coming back to the pricing aspect, uh, big consulting companies are charging 200 to 4,000 a year uh, for the service, um, which pretty much also is all externalized and then we'll need employees in the company to actually implement it. So um, in terms of pricing, I think it's, um, it's fair with, with the clients we talked to about. Thank you. Alessandro, I was wondering, so I also agree with my colleagues. I see a lot of different solutions um, out of the point of view of the customers. And I have like a carbon accounting tool, maybe a supplier selection tool. And now I need another tool for uh, getting my ESG reports in place. Um, so how do you think this landscape will develop? Because I, I can't see a world where, you know, at some point it's probably integrated in for the big ones. SAP, yeah. Exactly. Then there's still the smaller players, but they don't want to have 10 different tools for different type of sustainability topics. Where does it go? Yeah, you're completely right. Um, one client we're talking to at the moment, they're using three different providers just to cover all the ESG aspect. And they told us that they look in the future to actually have only one platform. So this is also one aspect that we fought through in the platform. So also being able to integrate social and governance with as pillars to then do the sustainability reporting, because uh, many of these people do not like to have to get acquainted to many different softwares. And also many times they're not connected one another. So you need to input the same data, maybe two, three times. Um, I believe there will be a player that is able to integrate uh, the others. I think probably vertical, we will have lots of vertical players that then will be consolidated uh, under a bigger tech company so that can provide these different uh, services. And we're also seeing a big trend of consulting companies acquiring um, software to, to facilitate uh, their work and also acquire all the data they already collected. Thank you. I guess that on your product development journey, the integration with those other tools is an integral part as well, right? That you just like pull the data so, and then... APIs are, are definitely a big, um, big layer of automation that, that is coming in. Yeah. So... Um, so why do you, how do you bridge the gap between reporting and actually changing things? Because that's often a big issue, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, part of the reporting includes how the companies plan to reduce their emissions. And for retail especially, the big lever is category one of scope-free emissions, which is all the purchased goods and raw materials. So if you think about a supermarket or a fashion retailer, they do not really have control, um, or at least they don't know yet what's the impact of everything they're buying. From next year, they will actually have a better overview. So what we're seeing is, for instance, this big retailer in Germany is now scoring all the suppliers based on their sustainability practices, and then is going to prioritize the one with better opportunities. So we're pretty much giving this tool to any kind of retailer or um, fashion company, retail company, to then also being able to choose better suppliers or um, better partners. But there's so many people that are also giving up very similar tools. That's my big challenge with the, the ESG reporting tools is the suppliers are doing this for primarily one of two or three reasons. One, they're regulated and they have to. Two, they want to be able to have green PR and kind of wash that in front of folks. And three, maybe to save costs or more likely because they have to. So like, why do they choose you? And if it is that, 
then aren't they just going to choose the cheapest ESG solution that gets the job done? Mm -hmm. I believe by specializing in fashion, uh, we're seeing clients that come to us because they see our expertise and they can actually do a better job than a sector agnostic. So I think it's going to be really important to provide the best solution with also the best data access and integrations to then uh, roll on into new markets. Uh, I believe cost won't be a, a big factor because these are big companies with big margins. Um, it won't change a lot to spend 10 or 40,000 on a tool if this 30,000 is worth by a better product, which actually helps them save compliance costs and in the future with the carbon tax actually help them reduce financial costs. So I believe the, the key competitive is around automation and uh, UX UI of the product. Probably also supplier specific or fashion and fabric specific kind of um, knowledge. So you can't necessarily replace one fabric with another fabric no. and get the same uh, get the same type of performance and results. Uh, we started in fashion. My first venture is a marketplace for sustainable fashion. Uh, we actually have mm -hmm. over 250 partners. And we evaluated the sustainability of over 400 companies. So over the last five years, we actually saw companies really struggling to quantify their environmental impact and definitely bringing a lot of knowledge uh, from that experience. And that's why we're specializing uh, on this vertical. I mean, can you just give it for free to all the companies on your platform? And then once the law comes into place that they have to report on ESG, just turn off the free part and have them pay? That's a good idea. <laughs> Um, so how, how do you think the um, ESG reporting market will develop either in you know, fashion where you specialize in or overall? Because I guess you have plans to enter retail, meaning other, other platforms will have plans to enter fashion, even if they don't know what they're doing right now, uh, they will start knowing what they're going to be doing soon. Um, so do you see kind of a lot of um, local champions, kind of countrywide, region-wide, um, winning kind of you know different platforms being used by SMEs and corporates, or do you see kind of a few big winners in the market being consolidated? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I, I think I see uh, a lot of SMEs that are not required by regulations to have very broad solutions that are going to go kind of for cheap because they do not need to follow the complexity of, of larger companies. And then we will see more specialized. I think we will see vertical uh, players. Um, right now, there's definitely also a country component. So we're seeing certain companies, for instance, in Germany, different to, to Italy. So I feel like the timing and the go-to-market is definitely a, a good aspect. We're targeting fashion also because many people know each other. So once you have a few of the big clients, uh, it's much easier to, to win the others over. And there's a big presence in Europe across uh, Italy and France. So like if you target, let's say, all the big productions in France and Italy, then you probably have the majority of the players there. Great, thank you. Awesome, thanks for presenting, Alessandro. And uh, thanks everybody for presenting. You all did an incredible job. This was a, an interesting mix and pan, panel and interesting companies as well, tackling different solutions. But it, in my opinion, we need to make progress everywhere, not just in the things that are sexy and not just in the things that are super dirty, but anything that comes to a kind of reduction. Um, th this is the part of the show where we 
kind of kick things over to the investors, to the sharks, to the dragons, the ones who are looking for companies to invest in and rate the rate the companies. Pick one or two of your favorites based off of the one you'd be most likely to take a meeting with or are most interested in as a potential investment. And I'm going to take myself out of this because Myro's in the program, like I said. So I'm going to give this over to you guys. Alex, I'm going to make you the pseudo host. You've done this before. You want to go first? I am muted. So can I pick two? Yeah, pick, pick your favorite two. Everybody pick two, and then we'll see where the overlaps are. All right. Um, so I'm going to go for actually Hoopsie and Squamix, if I pronounce it correctly. Um, just because I learned so much also from the pitches. I really like the... I was surprised by the economics of both um, startups because I would have never thought that um, mushroom farming can be actually this profitable and um, and scalable also. Um, I like the Hoopsie product because it it's so, I mean, it makes so much sense. Um, and it kind of is, I like the platform approach. You start with one product and then you just extend. Um, I see lots of potential in there. Um, yeah, those are my two winners. Um, also, uh, obviously like, uh, the other presentations, um, I'm just a bit, you know, reporting for me is a bit of an issue because it's a red ocean. So for me, it's like really hard to, it's difficult to be surprised. I guess Miro, um, I'd love to have a look as well and understand a little bit better. Um, and uh, recycling as well. It's just so complex and very local. Um, so for me, that is also not the, oh yeah, that makes so much sense because it's, it's uh, every region just requires such a specific approach that um, um, this format is, it's, it's very hard to grasp the opportunity of what you're onto at the moment. So yeah, Hoopsie and uh, Squamix. Spawn, spawn, like my, um, like um, mushroom spawn. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry Tina, Tina, you want to go next? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, very uh, diverse sets of startup companies. I think my pick uh, would probably be Hoopsie. Uh, I think this comes from our typical investment that goes into deep tech. And I think potentially um, Hoopsie can develop uh, sort of core competency if they are able to develop new materials that can be biodegradable, flushable, and patented. And then it can potentially expand to other market applications that is urine-based testing. So I think that the opportunity to expand seems to seems to be quite interesting to me. Yeah. Awesome. And Arvin, you are up then. So for me, um, I actually would like to pick out SpawnX as well. Um, it's definitely the most kind of blue ocean scenario, I think, out of all the pitches today. Um, I was also surprised, similar to Alex, that um, kind of even from quick Googling, nobody really does it. Um, and, you know, the mushroom market is so big. I mean, uh, of course, I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't know about the economics of, of your standard farms, but um kind of uh, now accepting what what Vlad was saying in the pitch you know if it, if they can make a lot of things automatic there and um kind of have much higher margins um and then have a good kind of business model as well delivering all the substrates uh, mycelium all of that i mean it's it's potentially a winner so 
that's definitely that was uh you know number one pick for me he also managed to legally flee russia and to get his his family out of the country and get hooked up with an austrian business incubator which is uh proves a bit of the hustle as well so it sounds like we have a tie then between hoopsie and Sponex with uh two votes each co-champions for tonight then I'll take the si- I'll take the silence as a yes. All the companies, thank you so much for presenting. Thanks for sharing and doing what you guys are doing. Obviously, there's a lot of really interesting things happening. And investors, uh, if you want to post your info in the chat here, before, if you do want companies to reach out to you, then go ahead and do that. Or if you want to reach out to the companies, it's pretty much always first name at domainname.com because the founder gives themselves the good domain names. And then um, let's uh, let's get an overview as well. So Tina. Where's the best place for people to find you and reach out if they're interested? Yeah, you should uh, try to find us uh, at uh, tdk-ventures.com and our teams are listed there. Arvin? Um, it would always be uh, good to have a chat on LinkedIn. I think that's the kind of platform I use the most. So uh, feel free to add me, send me a direct message and I'll be happy to have a chat. And then there's Alex. Yeah, I just posted my details in the chat. Um, best to reach me on email. Um, I'm very responsive. I'm trying to stay away from social media, so it takes a little longer on LinkedIn. So please send me an email. And if you guys want to find us, find out more about uh, a partner in crime prog- partner in crime program, and how we operate our accelerator and help our companies kind of grow, scale, and get traction. Forward.vc, the number four ward.vc. And I'm Matt, so you can figure out my email address or just contact me through there. And if you want to pitch on an upcoming session of the Startup Tank, we do this every two weeks, pre seed to pre series A. Hop on the startuptank.com and you can apply right through there. It'll send you to our nice little form and we'll see what we can do about getting you some exposure to some awesome companies like or some awesome investors like this. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. And now it's, uh, it's time to tune out and go get dinner, I think, for the Europeans. Cheers, folks. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show presented by Forward VC. I'm your host, Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's Angel Syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of the Startup Tank, please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a accredited investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.